Chapter One of Uller Uprising. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. Uller Uprising by H. Beam Piper. Chapter One Commander in Chief, Front and Center. General Carlos von Schlichten threw his cigarette away flexed his hands in his gloves, and set his monocle more firmly in his eye. Stepping forward as the footsteps on the stairway behind him ceased, and the other officers emerged from the squat flint keep, Captain Kazabiel, the post-CO, big chocolate-brown brigadier-general Themistocles Mazangui, little Colonel Hideyoshi O'Leary. Far in front of him, to the left, the horizon was lost in the cloud-bank over Takad Sea. Directly in front, and to the right, the brown and gray and black flint mountains sawed into the sky until they vanished in the distance. Unseen below, the old caravan trail climbed one side of the pass and slid down the other. A sheer five hundred feet below the parapet and the two-corner catapult platforms which now mounted ninety-millimeter guns. On the little hundred-foot square parade ground in front of the keep his air-car was parked, and the soldiers were assembled. Ten or twelve of them were Terrans, a couple of lieutenants, sergeants, gunners, technicians, the sergeant-driver, and corporal-gunner of his own car. The other fifty-odd were Ulleran natives. They stood erect on stumpy legs and broad six-toed feet. They had four arms apiece, one pair from true shoulders, and the other connected to a pseudo-pelvis midway down the torso. Their skins were slate-gray and rubbery, speckled with pinhead-sized bits of quartz that had been formed from perspiration, for their body tissues were silicone instead of carbon-hydrogen. Their narrow heads were unpleasantly saurian, they had small double-lidded red eyes and slit-like nostrils and wide mouths filled with opalescent teeth. Except for their belts and equipment they were completely naked. The uniform consisted of the emblem of the chartered Uller Company, stencil-painted on chests and backs. Clothing to them was unnecessary, either for warmth or modesty. As to the former, they were cold-blooded, and could stand a temperature range of from a hundred and twenty to minus one hundred centigrade. Von Slichten had seen them sleeping in the open with their bodies covered with frost or freezing rain. He had also seen them wade through boiling water. As to the second, they had practically no sex inhibitions. They were all of the same gender, true functional hermaphrodites. Any individual among them could bear young or fertilize the ova of any other individual. Fifteen years ago, when he had come to Uller as a former Terran Federation captain, newly commissioned colonel in the army of the Uller Company, it had taken some time before he had become accustomed to the detailing of a non-com and a couple of privates out of each platoon for babysitting duty. At least, though, they didn't have the squaw trouble around army posts on Uller that they had on Thor where he had last been stationed. An air-jeep coming in out of the sun circled the crag-top fort and let down onto the terrace next to von Schlitten's command car. It carried a bristle of fifteen-millimeter machine-guns, and two of the eight fifty-millimeter rocket-tubes on either side were empty and freshly smoke-stained. 
the door-glass canopy slid back, and the two-man crew, lieutenant driver and sergeant gunner, jumped out. Von Schlichten knew them both. "'Lieutenant Kendall, Sergeant Garcia,' he greeted. "'Good afternoon, gentlemen.' Both saluted in the informal hell-with-rank-we're-all-human manner of Terran soldiers on extraterrestrial duty, and returned the greeting. "'How's the Geel situation?' he asked, then nodded toward the fired rocket-tubes. "'I see you had some shooting.' "'Yes, sir,' the lieutenant said. Two bands of them. We sighted the first coming up the eastern side of the mountain, about two miles this side of the Blue Springs. We got about half of them with M.G. fire, and the rest dived into a big rock crevice. We had to use two rockets on them, and then had to let down and pot a few of them with our pistols.' We caught the second band in that little punch-bowl place about a mile this side of Zortok's old fort. There were only six of them. They were bunched together, feeding, off one of their own gang, I'd say. The way we've been keeping them up in the high rocks, they've been eating inside the family quite a bit lately. We let them have two rockets, no survivors, not many very big pieces, in fact. We let down at Zortok's for a beer after that, and Captain Martinelli told us that one of his jeeps caught what he thinks was the same band that was down off the mountain night before last, and ate those peasants on Prince Neeldink's estate. Gad, I'm glad to hear that. There'd been a perfect hell of a flap about that business. Before the Terrans came to Uller it was a good year when not more than five hundred farm folk would be killed and eaten by Geel cannibals. The incident of two nights ago had been the first of its kind in almost six months, but the nobleman whose serfs had been eaten was practically accusing the company of responsibility for the crime. I'll see that Neeldink is informed. The more you do for these damned geeks, the more they expect from you. When you get your vehicle re-ammoed, Lieutenant, suppose you buzz back to where you machine-gunned that first gang. If there are any more around, they'll have moved in for the free meal by now. This breakdown of the Geel's taboo against eating fellow tribesmen was one of the best things he'd heard from the Cannibal Extermination Project for some time. He turned to Themistocles Mazangui. In about two weeks, get a little task force together, say ten combat cars, about twenty air jeeps, and a battalion of Kragan rifles in troop carriers. Oh, yes, and this good-for-nothing Conkrook Fencibles outfit of Prince Jazer's, they can be used for beaters and to block escape routes. He turned back to Lieutenant Kendall and Sergeant Garcia. Good work, boys, and if the synchro photos show that any of that first bunch got away, don't feel too badly about it. These geals can hide on the top of a pool table. He climbed into the command car, followed by Themistocles Mazangui and Hideyoshi O'Leary, Sergeant Harry Kwong and Corporal Hassan Bogdanov took their places on the front seat. The car lifted, turned to nose into the wind, and rose in a slow spiral. Below the fort grew smaller, a flat-topped rectangle of masonry overlooking the pass, a gun covering each approach, and two more on the square keep to cover the rocky hogback on which the fort had been built, with the flagpole between them. Once that pole had lifted a banner of ragged black marsh-flopper skin, bearing the device of the Cragen Reaver chieftain, whose family had built the castle. Now it carried a neat rectangle of blue bunting, emblazoned with the wreathed globe of the Terran Federation, and below that the blue-gray pennant which bore the vermilion trademark of the chartered Uller Company. "'Where now, sir?' Eric Kwong asked. 
He looked at his watch. Seventeen hundred. There wasn't time for a visit to Zortok's old fort, ten miles to the north at the next pass. Back to Concrook to the island. The nose of the car swung east by south. The cold jet rotors began humming, and then the hot jets were cut in. The car turned from the fort and the mountains and shot away over the foothills toward the coastal plain. Below were forests, yellow-green with new foliage of the second growing season of the equatorial year, veined with narrow dirt roads and spotted with occasional clearings. Farther east the dirty gray wood smoke of Uller marked the progress of the charcoal burnings. It took forty years to burn the forest clear back to the flint cliffs. By the time the burners reached the mountains, the new trees at the seaward edge would be ready to cut. Off to the south he could see the dark green squares where the hemlocks and the Norway spruce had been planted by the company. With a little chemical fertilizer they were doing well, and they had made better charcoal than the silicate heavy native wood. That was the only natural fuel on Uller. There was no coal, of course, since fallen timber and even standing dead trees petrified in a matter of a couple of years. There was too much silica on Uller, and not enough of anything else. What would be coal seams on Terra were strata of silicified wood, and, of course, there was no petroleum. There was less charcoal being burned now than formerly. The Uller Company had been bringing in great quantities of synthetic thermoconcentrate fuel, and had been setting up nuclear furnaces and nuclear electric power plants wherever they gained a foothold on the planet. Beyond the forests came the farmlands. Around the older estates thick walls of flint and petrified wood had been built, wide moats dug to keep out the shellosars, but now the moats were dry and the walls falling into disrepair. Some of the newer farms, land devoted to agriculture with the declining demand for charcoal, had neither moats nor walls. That was the company, too. The huge shell-armored beasts had become virtually extinct in the conch isthmus now, since the introduction of bazookas and recoilless rifles. There seemed to be quite a bit of power equipment working in the fields, and big contragravity lorries were drifting back and forth scattering fertilizer, mainly nitrates, from Memer or Yggdrasil. There was still a good number of animal-drawn plows and heralds in use, however. As planets went, Uller was no bargain, he thought sourly. At times he wished he had never followed the lure of rapid promotion and fantastically high pay, and left the Federation regulars for the army of the Uller Company. If he hadn't, he'd probably be a colonel at five thousand sols a year, but maybe it would be better to be a middle-aged colonel on a decent planet, Odin, with its two moons, Hugin and Munin, and its wide grasslands, and its evergreen forests that looked and even smelled like the pine woods of Terra or Baldor, with snow-capped mountains and clear cold lakes and rocky rivers dashing under great vine-hung trees, or Freya, where the people were human to the last degree and the women were so breathtakingly beautiful than a company army general at twenty-five thousand on this combination ice-box, furnace, wind-tunnel, and stone-pile, where the water tasted like soap-suds and left a crackly film when it dried, where the temperature ranged from pole to pole between two hundred and fifty and minus a hundred and fifty Fahrenheit, and the Beaufort scale ran up to thirty, where nothing that ran or swam or grew was fit for a human to eat, and where the people... Of course there were worse planets than Uller, there was Nidhogg, cold and foggy, its equatorial zone a gloomy marsh, 
and the rest of the planet locked in eternal ice. There was Bifrost, which always kept the same face turned to its primary, one side blazingly hot and the other close to absolute zero, with a narrow and barely habitable twilight zone between. There was Mimer, swarming with a race of semi-intelligent quasi-rodents, murderous, treacherous, utterly vicious, or Niflheim. The Uller Company had the franchise for Niflheim, too. They'd had to take that and agree to exploit the planet's resources in order to get the franchise for Uller, which furnished a good quick measure of the comparative merits of the two. Ahead the city of Konkrook sprawled along the delta of the Konk River, and extended itself inland. The river was dry now. Except in spring, when it was a red-brown torrent, it never ran more than a trickle, and not at all this late in the northern summer. The aircar lost altitude, and the hot jets stopped firing. They came gliding in over the suburbs and the yellow-green parks, over the low one-storied dwellings and shops, the lofty temples and palaces, the fantastically twisted towers, following a street that became increasingly mean and squalid as it neared the industrial district along the waterfront. Von Schlichten, on the right, glanced idly down, puffing slowly on his cigarette. Then he stiffened, the muscles around his right eye clamping tighter on the monocle. Leaning forward, he punched Harry Quong lightly on the shoulder. "'Circle back, Sergeant. Let's have a look at that street again,' he directed. "'Something going on down there.' Looks like a riot. Yes, sir, I saw it, the Chinese-Australian driver replied. Terran's in trouble, being mobbed by geeks. Aircar parked right in the bloody middle of it. The car made a twisting, banking loop and came back, more slowly. Colonel Hideyoshi O'Leary was using the binoculars. That's right, he said, Terran's being mobbed. Two of them backed up against a house. I saw one of them firing a pistol. Von Schlichten had the handset of the car's radio and was punching out the combination of the company guardhouse on Kongonk Island. He held down the signal button until he got an answer. Von Schlichten in car over Konkrook. Riot on 4th Avenue, just off 72nd Street. No Terran could possibly remember the names of Konkrook's streets. Even native troops recruited from outside found the numbers easier to learn and remember. Geeks mobbing a couple of Terrans. I'm going down now to do what I can to help. Send troops in a hurry. Cragen rifles. And stand by. My driver'll give it to you as it happens. The voice of somebody at the guardhouse bawling orders came out of the receiver as he tossed the phone forward over Harry Kwong's shoulder. Kwong caught it and began speaking rapidly and urgently into it while he steered with the other hand. Von Schlichten took one of the five-pound spiked riot maces out of the rack in front of him. Themistocles Mazangui had already drawn his pistol. He shifted it to his left hand and took a mace in his right. The Nipponese Irish colonel, looking like a homicidally infuriated pixie, had an automatic in one hand and a long dagger in the other. Harry Kwong and Hassan Bogendorf were old hands. They'd done this sort of work before. Bogendorf rose into the ball turret and swung the twin fifteen millimeters around, cutting loose. Quong brought the car in fast, at about shoulder height on the mob. Between them they left a swath of mangled, killed, wounded, and stunned natives. Then, spinning the car around, Quong set it down hard on a clump of rioters as close as possible to the struggling group around the two Terrans. 
Von Schlichten threw back the canopy and jumped out of the car, O'Leary and Mazangwe behind him. There was another air car, a dark maroon civilian job at the curb. Its native driver was slumped forward over the controls, a short crossbow bolt sticking out of his neck. Backed against the closed door of a house, a Terran with white hair and a small beard was clubbing futilely with an empty pistol. He was wounded, and blood was streaming over his face. His companion, a young woman in a long fur coat, was laying about her with a native bolo knife. Von Schlichten's mace had a spiked ball head, and a four-inch spike in front of that. He smashed the ball down on the back of one Ulleran's head, and jabbed another in the rump with the spike. Zack, Zack! he yelled in Pigeon Ulleran. Jick, jick, you lizard-faced creator's blunder! The Ulleran whirled, swinging a blade somewhere between a big butcher-knife and a small machete. His mouth was open, and there was froth on his lips. Zdedzubadit, he screamed. Von Schlichten parried the cut on the steel shaft of his mace. Sudabit yourself, you geek bastard, he shouted back, ramming the spike end into the opal-filled mouth. And Zenid you too, he added, recovering and slamming the ball head down on the narrow Saurian skull. The Ulleran went down, spurting a yellow fluid about the consistency of gun oil. Then, without wasting words, he maced another of the things. Ahead, one of the natives had caught the wounded Terran with both lower hands, and was raising a dagger with his upper right. The girl in the fur coat swung wildly, slashing the knife-arm, then chopped down on the creature's neck. To one side, a native, somewhat better dressed than the others, to the extent of a couple of belts with gold ornaments, drew a Terran automatic. Von Schlichten hurled his mace and drew his pistol, thumbing off the safety as he swung it up, but before he could fire, Hassan Bogendorf had seen and swung his guns around. The double burst caught the native in the chest and fairly tore him apart. Another of them closed with the girl, grabbing her right arm with all four hands and biting at her. She screamed and kicked her attacker in the groin, where an Ulleran is, if anything, even more vulnerable than a Terran. The native howled hideously, and von Schlichten, jumping over a couple of corpses, shoved the muzzle of his pistol into the creature's open mouth and pulled the trigger, blowing its head apart like a rotten pumpkin, and splashing both himself and the girl with yellow blood and rancid-looking gray-green brains. Hideyoshi O'Leary, jumping forward after von Schlichten, stuck his dagger into the neck of a rioter and left it there, then caught the girl around the waist with his free arm. Themistocles Mazangwe dropped his mace and swung the frail-looking man onto his back. Together they struggled back to the command car, von Schlichten covering the retreat with his pistol. Another rioter, a Zert nomad from the north, he guessed, was aiming one of the long-barreled native air rifles, holding the ten-inch globe of the air chamber in both lower hands. Von Schlichten shot him, and the Zert literally blew to pieces. For an instant he wondered how the small bursting charge of a ten-millimeter explosive pistol bullet could accomplish such havoc, and assumed that the native had been carrying a bomb in his belt. Then another explosion tossed fragmentary corpses nearby, and another, and another. Glancing quickly over his shoulder, he saw four combat cars coming in, firing with forty-millimeter autocannon and fifteen-millimeter machine-guns. They swept between the hovels on one side and the warehouses on the other, strafing the mob, darted up to a thousand feet, looped and came swooping back, 
and this time there were three long blue-gray troop-carriers behind them. These landed in the hastily cleared street and began disgorging native company soldiers, Cragen mercenaries, he noted with satisfaction. They carried a modified version of the regular Terran Federation infantry rifle, stocked and sighted to conform to their physical peculiarities with long thorn-like triangular bayonets. One platoon ran forward, dropped to one knee, and began firing rapidly into what was left of the mob. Four-handed soldiers can deliver a simply astonishing volume of fire, particularly when armed with auto-rifles having twenty-shot drop-out magazines, which can be changed with the lower hands without lowering the weapon. There was a clatter of shod hoofs, and a company of the King of Concrete's cavalry came trotting up on their six-legged, lizard-headed, quartz-speckled mounts. Some of these charged into side alleys, joyfully lancing and cutting down fleeing rioters, while others dismounted, three tossing their reins to a fourth, and went to work with their crossbows. Von Schlichten, who ordinarily entertained a dim opinion of the King of Concrete's soldiery, admitted grudgingly that it was smart work. Forehands were a big help in using a crossbow, too. A Terran captain of native infantry came over, saluting. "'Are you and your people all right, General?' he asked. Von Schlichten glanced at the front seat of his car, where Harry Quong, a pistol in his right hand, was still talking into the radio phone, and Hassan Boganoff was putting fresh belts into his guns. Then he saw that the Greco-African brigadier and the Irish-Japanese colonel had gotten the wounded man into the car.' The girl, having dropped her bolo, was leaning against the side of the car, one foot heedlessly in what was left of an Ulleran who had gotten smashed under it, weak with nervous reaction. "'We seem to be, Captain Podolsky. Very smart work. You must have those vehicles of yours on hyperspace drive. How is he, Colonel?' "'We'd better get him to the hospital right away,' O'Leary replied. "'I think he has a concussion. Harry, call the hospital.' Tell them what the score is, and tell them we're bringing the casualty in to their top landing stage. Why, we'll make out very nicely, Captain. You'd better stay around with your Cragens and make sure that these geeks of King Jacarts don't let the riot flare up again and get away from them, and don't let them get the impression that they can maintain order around here without our help. The company would like to see that attitude discouraged. Yes, sir, I understand. Captain Podolsky opened the pouch on his belt and took out the false palate and the tongue-clicker without which no Terran could do more than mouth a crude and barely comprehensible pigeon Ulleran. Stuffing the gadget into his mouth, he turned and began jabbering orders. Von Schlichten helped the girl into the car, placing her on his right. The wounded civilian was propped up in the left corner of the seat, and Colonel O'Leary and Brigadier General Mzengwi took the jump seats. The driver put on the contragravity field, and the car lifted up. Them, see if there's a flask and a drinking cup in the door pocket next to you, he said. I think Miss Quinton could use a drink. The girl turned. Even in her present disheveled condition, she was beautiful, a trifle on the petite side, with black hair and black eyes that quirked up oddly at the outer corners. Her nails were black lacquered and spotted with little gold stars, evidently a new feminine fad from Terra. I certainly could, General. How did you know my name? You've been on Uller for the last three months, ever since the city of Canberra got in from Niflheim. On Uller there aren't enough of us that everybody doesn't know all about everybody else. 
you're dr paula quinton you're an extraterrestrial sociographer and you're a field agent for the extraterrestrials rights association like mohammed ferreira here he took the cup and flask from themistocles mazangua and poured her a drink take this easy now balder honey rum a hundred and fifty proof he watched her sip the stuff cautiously cough over the first mouthful and then get the rest of it down more when she shook her head he stoppered the flask and relieved her of the cup what were you doing in that district anyhow he wanted to know i would have thought mohammed ferreira would have had more sense than to take you there or go there himself for that matter we went to visit a friend of his a native named keeluk who seems to be a sort of combination clergyman and labor leader she replied i'm going to observe labor conditions at the north pole mines in a short while and mr keeluk was going to give me letters of introduction to friends of his at skilk with the aid of his monocle von slichten managed to keep a straight face neither mazangui nor o'leary had any such aid the african rolled his eyes and the japanese irishman grimaced we talked with mr keeluk for a while the girl said and when we came out we found that our driver had been killed and a mob had gathered of course we were carrying pistols they're part of this survival kit you make everybody carry along with the emergency rations and the water desilicator mr ferreira's wasn't loaded but mine was when they rushed us i shot a couple of them and then picked up that big knife that's why you're still alive von slichten commented we wouldn't be if you hadn't come along she told him i never in my life saw anything as beautiful as you coming through that mob swinging that war club well i never saw anything much more beautiful than those forty millimeters beginning to land in the mob von slichten replied the air car swung out over konkrook channel and headed toward the blue-gray company buildings on gongonk island and the company airport swarming with lorries and airboats where the ten thousand ton um paul kruger had just come in from keegark and the company's one real warship the cruiser procyon was lifting out for grank in the north down at the southern tip of the island the three thousand foot globe of the spaceship city of pretoria from niflheim was loading with cargo for terra just what happened while you and mr ferreira were in keeluk's house miss quinton hideyoshi o'leary asked trying not to sound official was keeluk with you all the time or did he go out for a while say fifteen or twenty minutes before you left why yes he did paula quinton looked surprised how did you guess it you see a dog started barking behind the house and he excused himself and-a dog von slichten almost shouted the other officers echoed him and on the front seat harry quong said coo blimey why yes paula quinton's eyes widened but there are no dogs on uller except a few owned by terrans and wasn't there something about von slichten had the radiophone and was calling the command car at the scene of the riot the sergeant driver answered von slichten here my compliments to captain podolsky and tell him he's to make immediate and thorough search of the house in front of which the incident occurred and adjoining houses for his information that's keeluk's house tell him to look for traces of governor-general harrington's collie or any of the other terrestrial animals that have been disappearing that goat for instance or those rabbits and i want keeluk brought in alive and in condition to be interrogated i'll send more troops or constabulary to help you he handed the phone to mazangui you take care of that end of it them 
you know who can be spared. But what, the girl began, that's why you were attacked, he told her. Keeluk was afraid to let you get away from there alive to report hearing that dog, so he went out and had a gang of thugs rounded up to kill you. But he was only gone five minutes. In five minutes I can put all the troops in Konkrook into action. Keeluk doesn't have radio or TV, we hope, but he has his forces concentrated, and he has a pretty good staff. But Mr. Keeluk's a friend of ours. He knows what our association is trying to do for his people. So he shows his appreciation by setting that mob on you. Look, he has a lot of influence in that section. When you were attacked, why wasn't he out trying to quiet the mob? When they jumped you, you tried to get back into the house, Mzangwe put in, and you found the door barred against you. Yes, but the girl looked troubled. Mzangwe had guessed right. But what's all the excitement about the dog? What is it, the sacred totem animal of the Uller Company? It's just a big brown collie named Stalin, like half the dogs on Terra. Somebody stole it, and Keeluk was keeping it, and we want to know why. We don't like geek mysteries, not when they lead to murderous attacks on Terrans, at least. The aircar let down on the hospital landing stage. A stretcher was waiting, with a Terran intern and two Ulleran orderlies. They got the still unconscious Mohammed Ferreira out of the car. You'd better go with them yourself, Miss Quinton, von Slichten advised. You have a couple of nasty-looking bruises and bumps. A couple of abrasions, too, where those geeks grabbed you. They have hides like sandpaper. And better have that coat clean before that goo on it hardens, or it'll be ruined. Yes, you have a lot of it on your uniform, too. He glanced down at the blue-gray jacket. So I have. And another thing, those letters Keeluk was going to give you, the ones to his friends in Skilk, did you get them? She felt in the pocket of her coat. Yes, I still have them. I wish you'd let Colonel O'Leary have a look at them. There may be more to them than you think. Hid, will you go with Miss Quinton? End of chapter 1